Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. Hopefully you've been following along and, and reading and listening and, and uh, taking notes, going back and studying some more and uh, see what the Lord is showing you through the study of Joshua. Great, great, great book. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for this place to come and sit and even technology to be able to listen uh, and uh, to learn what your Holy Spirit has for us this evening to illuminate uh, to us your truth and who you are, God, and may we just fall deeper in love with you and trust our faith to deepen by hearing of your word, be transformed and changed uh, by your word this evening. And again, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to be able to come and uh, gather here in your name. In Jesus' name, we do pray. Amen. By God's empowerment and leading, he used a man named Joshua. And he used and raised up this man, and God had been in his life as a kind of a, the assistant to Moses all those years. Now he finds himself being the leader. And God has prepared him, and he had a good person to watch and observe Moses' life and experience things that God has brought him through. And now God is bringing him through the same, same kind of patterns in many ways. But it's through that development of this Joshua's leadership and by miraculous intervention, we saw last week some two point, probably closer to three million soldiers and civilians cross the Jordan at high tide. It's the first of three works done by Israel going through to the promised land, we will see. We saw the first one last week where God actually stopped the water some 19, 20 miles up the river and uh, it just heaped up and allowed dry land and for the people to walk across into the western side of the Jordan River into the promised land. And how that could have been, oh man, our whole lives. Do you remember, you know, some were saying we were so young when we saw that, when the crossing of the Red Sea it was amazing. We saw the fish, baby, and all the things in dry land and the enemy was coming after it. It's just, but it was so young. And then there were some who says, all we've been hearing our whole life, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years is the story of the, of God miraculously opening up the Red Sea and allowing us to part through and then swallowing up the enemy. And we just experienced it ourselves 40 years later. We have an amazing God. And because of that was so, so amazing and God didn't want that to pass, he told Joshua, while the Levites were holding on to, and the priests were guarding and, and holding on to the the Ark of the Covenant in the water and it dried up and they stood there. He took stones and made a memorial there in the water, but also each leader of each of the tribe had to take a stone across into the promised land and there Joshua and them created another a memorial. So that was the very first work that we saw in Gilgal was the memorial stone set up and we saw that in chapter four verses 19 and 20. And that, those stones will always be remembered. They're always in place. The scripture said they're still there today. 
as the scripture says. And it was there to remind the children of Israel of what God miraculously has done and continues to do to lead them and provide for them and miraculously bring them into the fulfillment of the promises of God. Tonight we'll see the second work and the third work. The second work is at Gilgal. We'll see as a, what we, I guess I would refer to as a, really a radical um, obedience because we find that they're on the western side of the Jordan River and the river started flowing again. They're on the opposite side but on the, of the river from, well I should say, they're on the same side as the, of the river as their enemy. So God opened up the water so they could come onto the enemy side, not to get away from the enemy, but to go right into the enemy territory. They're surrounded by Canaanites, Amorites. Every enemy of God is sitting there ready to, to wanting to, 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 to take over the nation of Israel until we see in the scripture that because of God, they were certainly not ready to deal with God's people. Because we see here in Joshua 5.1, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were with them on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until he had crossed over that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. They are sitting there, these are mighty warriors, and they see what God just miraculously did. Remember, they heard from a distance what God did with the, the, the first generation coming through the Red Sea. And that prepared, remember, we heard that through uh, um, Rahab, that everyone heard the story. They all knew what, what took place and what God is providing through them through the wilderness, but crossing through the Red Sea. That brought tremendous fear in these people. But then to see it actually happen and hear it happen once again in front of them, because they're right there by the water. They were right by this, the sea. That sea would have been in the Mediterranean Sea. So it was a distance enough where they just heard, okay, they just crossed the Jordan. They're on our side. And we're here in the Mediterranean Sea. And we see the Amorites were you know, throughout that western side here. And it caused their hearts to be melted. They were so much fear, there was no spirit in them. They couldn't move. They're paralyzed by fear, is what we would refer to it. But these melted hearts are a great thing if you're melt in repentance. But this melted heart was not a heart of repentance. We will see that it will turn from melting back into even more of a hardened heart or a hardened state of the heart, just like Pharaoh through all those miracles. Unless there's repentance, there's no change of heart. That melting of heart, that softening of heart, that, 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 that brokenness is of no good unless there's a repentance with it. They can fear and melt all they want and cry and weep and, oh, what are we going to do? But if there's no repentance, there's no change of heart, which we will see. But when our spiritual enemies see that we are trusting God and are willing to step out in obedient faith as those the Israelites did, even when it seems crazy that God would want us to take us from one side of the river where we were saved to the other side where we're right in the enemy territory. 
pinned up against a water that we cannot go anywhere. The enemy will insistently lose their battle or confidence to battle against God's people when they see God is with them. We may forget, but our spiritual enemies always remember that if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 They know when we are really trusting in God and, and their defeat is certain because God is with us. The Canaanites' morale was devastated, utterly collapsed. Hearing that the, Israel's God had dried up the, not only the Red Sea, but right there in front of them, they dried up the Jordan River. Now they're in the land. Now you would think, because of this, you would see what a great opportunity for the Israelite soldiers to go right into battle. They'd be so pumped knowing what God just did for them. You would think they would just, let's just keep rolling. That would be military wisdom. Let's just keep rolling them right into the enemy. We're just going to bulldoze through. They're fearful. They're melted. They have no spirit. There's no strength in them. They're ready to run. What a better time for a military strike. Especially Jericho. It's right there. But military plan is completely different than God's plan. God's plans are always different. The way he thinks is different than the way we think. The way he does things are different than when we do things. So God's plan was not to strike immediately. God is never in a hurry, though his children, you and I, may often be very hurried. I'm ready, God. Let's keep moving. Let's, we got momentum. Let's go to here. Let's go do this thing. And he said, wait, wait, wait. I'm not in a hurry here. Why does he not have to be in a hurry to go take and strike the enemy? Because he knew that Joshua and the people, the soldiers were, and the, the people just crossing the, uh, the Jordan River was not ready to go into battle. How were they not ready? Because they were not consecrated to God. Their lives were not right with God. You will not have victory over your battles until you're right with God. So from God's point of view, Israel was not ready to fight the cannons on cannon soil. They were some unfinished business, and it was a spiritual matter that needed to be taken care of, a spiritual character that needed to be renewed. And it was a renewal because God is going to take them back to what God said in his Abraham's covenant of what his people must do. And consecration to God must precede a conquest. Before God would lead Israel to victory, there must be a change, a, a reconciliation. There must be a consecration with God and be right with God. But how many times people want things, God, please save me. Please give me victory over this. Give me this. But you're not willing to consecrate your life to him. You're not willing to change. You're not willing to repent. You're not willing to do anything. You just want him to take care of the problem. And we will see three things tonight. Three things where we see God will lead them through these three experiences. The first one we'll see in verses 1 through 9, the renewal of circumcision. The second one we'll see in verse 10, the celebration of Passover. 
And thirdly, the appropriation of the land's produce. They start partaking of the great food of the promised land in verses 11 and 12. And they're, so, they're very significant. In verse 2, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself. Oh, great. We're going to make knives. Remember, they didn't have the, the, the machinery or the chariots or the, 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 the big banner, uh, the uh, bannering uh, uh, rods, you know, where those big things you see in some of the movies and they're big old monstrosities and towers to be able to get over the walls. All those movies, you've seen it all. They didn't have any of that. They had slingshots. Now they're thinking, okay, are we going to make knives? And we're just going to go hand-to-hand combat. No, 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 no. That's not what God is saying here. God says, make flint knives. Very, 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 very sharp stones for yourself. Not for yourselves, for yourself. And circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. What does that mean? You've already been circumcised. How do you get circumcised the second time? He explains it here. Verse 3. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. That's an interesting place. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. Because God told him so. But why did God tell him he had to do it? All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way. Remember, 20 years and older. They all died. They were all circumcised the first time, right, when they came out of, you know, coming out of Egypt. They were all circumcised. But then they, they all died because of disbelief. After they had come out of Egypt, all those had died in verse 5 for all the people who came out had been circumcised but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt anyone younger than 20 I mean baby boys and young boys and then ones who were born here had not been circumcised what do you mean they haven't been circumcised well remember that generation was of unbelief they didn't really care about spiritual things they didn't keep up with what God said they were supposed to do. is to circumcise their boys. They didn't do it. Yeah, that's what God said. We went through it, but we don't have to do this with our, with our, our, our sons. But look at what happened. Once, what God says, well, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what I think. And look what happens in verse 6. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were, with, were, who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. You're going to get consumed. <laughs> they got consumed because of their unbelief and their unwillingness to follow God's word. To whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land. What land? The promised land. Which the Lord had sworn to their fathers. Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, right? And that they would give us the land flowing with milk and honey. He said, you're not going to see that land unless this takes place. Verse 7, Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. Verse 8, So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Of course they're not going to move. <laughs> you're not going anywhere after that surgical procedure. So if you look at the calculations, I, pr- I probably believe they were there about two weeks healing between getting circumcised before we start seeing in the next chapter before they start moving. 
That's about right in the healing process. But they're not moving anywhere. But why would God ask them to be circumcised before and they're in enemy territory? That doesn't even make any sense. What God is asking to do. Because all of the men of war would be incapacitated. The enemy could come right in and wipe them out. We've seen that play out in the scriptures before. Remember? Genesis 34, verses 24 and 25, describes how Simeon and Levi killed all the men in the city after tricking them and becoming circumcised. And while the men were unable to fight properly, they were slaughtered in retaliation because of the prince of that city had raped Dinah, the sister of Simeon and Levi. This could have been the same scenario that took place with all the nation of Israel. But God said that this was supposed to be taking place. This was going to take place. And they believed it by obedience. They said, okay, we trust you, God. If we're going to have victory, if we're going to be able to come into the promised land, we have to have, have circumcision take place. And Joshua was going to follow through with that. There was no question that he was going to be obedient. And God makes it clear. He makes it clear why. And everyone believed and followed through with that. But obviously, this was suicidal and from a military standpoint. This was crazy that it was going to take place. And that God would protect them and keep the people and melted hearts and no spirit, no fighting spirit to come against the people for over probably two weeks plus. God can do whatever he wants to do and he can do it and hold back the water in the Jordan River. He'll hold back the enemies from touching and coming near his people. So not only did Israel cross over the Jordan at a military undesirable place right there in front of Jericho, one of the strongholds and enemies, but they also incapacitated their army for several days. But they did this because they trusted God and they trusted in his direction instead of their own wisdom. They leaned not on their own understanding but in all their ways acknowledge him and he will direct their paths how important that is for us to know and remember they were put in a place where they could only trust God nothing nobody else alone only God alone and that is a hard place but a good place to be God only asked this of them after he showed his greatness by the Jordan River crossing when we remember all the things that the power of God has done in our lives, we are willing to trust Him in radical obedience. We're willing to do things even though it doesn't make sense and it doesn't pass logical test. But God said to do it. We must have that radical obedience. But why was circumcision so important? The Bible answer is very clear. Stephen, in his dynamic speech before the Sanhedrin, declared that God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, Acts 7-8. And circumcision then was not ordinary religious rite. It was not some religious thing. It was rooted in the Abrahamic covenant, a contract guarantee the everlasting continuation of Abraham's seed and their everlasting possession of the promised land. We saw, see that in, or saw that in Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8 and 9, or 10 and 11. 
And it's in this connection that God adopted circumcision as a sign or a symbol of that contract. We see that in Genesis 17.11. But why, God, why did God choose circumcision of all things as a sign? Because it symbolized the complete separation from the prevailing sins of the flesh. Deuteronomy 10.16 says, Therefore circumcision, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. So he makes the connection of the fleshiness of one's life. When you follow by the flesh, you become stiff-necked and you want what you want, however you want it, and you're very prideful. That's got to go. We see it in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God was circumcised your heart and the heart of your descendants to love your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Flesh will get in the way from your loving God. It's got to go. It's got to get out of the way. It cannot be hindering you no longer. It's got to be, you need to be consecrated to God. You need to cut the flesh. That is a spiritual matter. So what we see in verse 9, we see then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. So we see this reproach of Egypt. This reproach was their shame from Egypt. The shame of their degrading slavery of position that they were in. They were in bondage. It represents the old life that God freed them from. The reproach was rolled away by their radical trust, their absolute um, radical obedience and trusted to God by taking that specific action he told them to take. And he called this place Gilgal after this, this moment of reproach of Egypt, of, of what it means to roll away. I, every time I hear it and I say it, I just think of the rolling away of the stone and Jesus on that third day. God called Israel to a place where they saw themselves as they were in Him, in God. By faith, they could see themselves as an obedient, trusting people. Now they could see and stop seeing themselves as they were in their slavery and bondage. They're no longer in the old life. They're now in the new life, the new covenant. They're seeing it from their perspective, the fulfillment of the covenant of coming into the promised land. From our perspective, we're coming into the new covenant with our relationship with Jesus. Of course, this is the same work God wants us to do in us. Taking away the dishonor and the shame of our previous sinful and rebellion old life and seeing ourselves as who we are in Jesus. Paul affirms this to us as a Christian who has been circumcised in Christ. We see it in the, it's a New Testament picture for us that we are complete in Christ. And then we see that in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11. It says, In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, but by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It's a new life for you and I. And it's this circumcision is spiritual, not physical, relating not only to the external, it's not referring to the external organ, but to the one's inward being, the heart of a man, a heart of a woman. And it's this circumcision 
takes place at the time of salvation when the Holy Spirit joins a believer to Christ. And it's at that time when sinful nature is judged, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. We're, tr we're, we're transformed, we're renewed, we're regenerated at that point. And a Christian is to recognize that fact, that you're a new creation. Your sinful nature of the past has been judged, has been condemned, it's done, it's gone. Romans 6 verses 1 and 2, even though his, we have our cardinal nature still remains as part of him and, and her and our lives, but the nature has been changed, it's been judged, it's been taken care of there on the cross. Our cardinal nature has been judged, condemned, enemy. Our enemy has been conquered, though not yet executed. How important it is, the consecration, the cutting away of carnality from our life, being set free, being changed, and then we will then can have the conquest, which is victory in our life. Here in verse 10 and 11, we see the third work at Gilgal, and that is a redemption remembered. A redemption takes place here, and they remember that moment, and they're going to celebrate that as a remembrance of the day of the first Passover. We see here, now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Now it's interesting, this is an important little passage here in verses 10 and 11, because without circumcision, they would have been unqualified to participate in the important event that we see established in Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 and 44 and 48. And that is the Passover uh, the original Passover. The original Passover itself could never be repeated, but there was a power in its remembrance. There were as always a living remembrance of what took place in the deliverance of bringing them out of Egypt. Note here that they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month of the twilight. It's the same exact day and month that was the original Passover coming out of Egypt. Now think about that. God brought them all the way to the east side of the Jordan, opened up the Jordan, allowed them to pass through, and closed up the Jordan, put them in place just in the perfect, God's perfect time to celebrate His perfect timing of Passover. After they had to be circumcised, healed, and then celebrated on the same exact date that God said it would need to be celebrated, and that is the 14th day of the, of the month. It's amazing how God has perfect timing in His way. It's interesting, as they crossed over that those who were circumcised and now Passover were very young, remembering for some that night of the very first Passover. There's only been three times they've celebrated Passover. 
at the coming out of Egypt in the middle of the, of the wilderness. And then here coming into the promised land. But some of those who were very, very young remembered hearing their Abba, 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 Abba. What are you doing? What are, Abba, what are you, I'm killing a lamb and we're going to put blood on the doorpost. Uh, Abba, Abba, we're having a meal. This is very unusual. Abba, why are we packing up? Why are we all, everyone, all the entire neighbors, everyone's getting out of here in the middle of midnight and heading toward, we're going to the promised land? What, what is happening here? They heard it all the while they were growing up. And now they find themselves in the promised land celebrating the Passover of what God's promise to the nation of Israel. It was fulfilled. Now they're able to partake in the Passover in the promised land as God had always promised. But after the Passover, after that next day that they, we find that they partake of the of the. Of the of the produce of the land of the, of the promised land. And on that same day, they were, they were to be constant remembrance of the, the redemption of, at Calvary, live in our lives in the shadows of the cross. That's for us today, right? Circumcision, then Passover, first the Passover to leave Egypt, then into the promised land. We too come to the cross. We see the sacrifice. We see the blood that it was spilled for us. And then we see after a, 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 a passing and, a, and, and the, what the cross has done for us, and in giving us and setting us free in redemption. It is amazing things as we see these things coming together here in Gilgal and in the fulfillment of the New Testament. They're all memorials. The piles of stones, the consecration, the circumcision, the Passover. Um, all of these things God is orchestrating. Even down to the food, the produce of the land. These are all things of memorials and remembrance for the people of God's work in their lives. And that produce that they ate that morning after the Passover, Israel was presented for the battle. They had some of that Passover or that produce of the land. And being obedient, I can see here in this scripture here, they were fully obedient to the law of God. They knew the law of God. And so it's very highly probable that they first brought the wave offering of the sheath of grain to fulfill that what they were supposed to do in Leviticus 23, verses 10 through 14. Then the people ate freely of the harvest, including the unleavened cakes and the parched corn. So you can see that they were following the law. More than likely. But verse 12, we see then the manna ceased on the day after. So this is the third day. Passover celebrating the blood that set them free from, in, 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 of, of, of slavery, of bondage. And here now the third day we see the manna ceased. It ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land and the children of Israel no longer had manna. But they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. So that third day, the manna stopped. This generation has known nothing but God's faithfulness of provision of manna for 40 years. And it just stopped. So you can tell that this wasn't just something that just happened. It's just part of the, the environment and geo, geo whatever it is with people's kind of rationalization. Oh, it's the weather and it's the 
dirt and the makeup of this and this and that. No, no. God started miraculously and he stopped it miraculously so they knew exactly that it was God who provided and who stopped. Because they are in the promised land, he no longer had to provide for them miraculously through manna. And when the people were able to provide for themselves from the rich produce of the Canaan uh, land, God stopped the man and he didn't want them to get lazy, but to enter into a new partnership of trusting of him. And they had to trust God to bring the manna every day for 40 years, yes. But God's special provision was there every day, faithfully providing for them. God always provides. But he is perfectly free to change the source of his provision from time to time. We need to trust him, not in his manner of provision, or we will stumble when those things change. Like, well, that's changed. No, this is how God always provides. It's the only way I want him to provide. What do you mean he's going to provide for me differently? It will test your faith. And it is good to have a place like Gilgal in our lives. This is the place where we first come into God's promises, a place of memorial, a place of obedience, a place of redemption. It reminds us at that third day, there in John chapter 6, verse 35, and in verse 48, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Come. Verse 13, we see now Joshua sees a, has a personal, God has to work this leader out a little bit here. It's a really incredible story here in verses 13 through 15. Look what happens. And it came to pass when Joshua was, at, by, was by Jericho. So now he's moved even closer to Jericho. Why? That he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite him. In your Bible, it should be a capital M for man. With his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for your adversaries? Interesting question that he's asking. Are you for us or are you against us? I want to know because I'm about to pull out my sword, I bet you, and we're going to duel. Or if you are for us, then I'm going to calm down here and not be a guard. Because I'm really ch close to Jericho, and you know what he's doing out there. You do, don't you? He's sitting there looking up, and he's asking God, Okay, God, we're, we, I've done the circumcision. We've done the Passover. When are we going to battle? Because I haven't heard from you. When do we go to battle? How do we go to battle? What do you want me to do next? And he was seeking God and what to do next in the step because God has only given him two of the third steps. I see the provision stopped in manna. We're eating produce and stuff, but what do we do? Sit here? What do, how long do you want us to sit? I mean, you could see that he was seeking God. And when he did that, a man, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, our Lord, shows up, I believe is who this is, shows up and his sword is drawn in his hand and Joshua went to him and he asked that important question, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, no. <laughs> no, which one? 
No, what, what, I asked you, who, who are you for? No, I'm not for either of you. He says, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Very simple. Drop. Worship. Lord, what do you want me to do? Verse 15, then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. <laughs> Here's a man looking up. Now what do you want me to do, God? What do you want me to do? I haven't heard from you. It's been a few days, it's been a couple of weeks. I've been doing what you asked me to do. I did the circumcision, we did the Passover, we've been eating of the food, but when are we going to battle? I see these double thick walls in Jericho. I see it fortified. I see how overwhelming it looks. But God had not yet spoken to Joshua and he wasn't going to do anything until he heard first what God wanted him to do. Had not, remember, this man had not battled against an enemy like this before. He's never had to battle against a place like Jericho with fortified walls and everything else. He had not seen any of these things like this. He doesn't have history. He didn't have some, some experience to be able to take these walls down. He didn't have the equipment. He didn't have anything to rely upon. None of the people actually ever saw. How do you tear down and get into a city and take over a city like Jericho? But that's when God showed up. And the man stood opposite to him. And Joshua boldly approaches this mysterious man with a drawn sword and said, it didn't matter. He was coming to engage like a shepherd over God's people, I am not going to mess with here. I'm going to figure out who this person is. And he had the responsibility to see if this man was a friend or a foe. And this was a logical question to the impressive man, was it? <laughs> not really. He just answered no. The man refused to answer Joshua's question because it is not the right question he should be asking. It's not the most important question to be asked at that time. The question really wasn't if the Lord is on Joshua's side. The question is, Joshua, are you on my side? And I'm here to tell you, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. It, this was God himself pulling rank on Joshua, who himself was a great military leader. But the Lord is always the commander. We know that this being standing before Joshua was God because the commander of the army of God could perhaps apply to an angel like some people think. Maybe it was the archangel Michael based on passages we see in Revelation 12, 7. But I, we, we know it's not him. Why? Because Joshua fell down and worshipped. No angel would have received that worship. Especially Michael would have never received that worship. Only the Lord would have received that worship. No angel would have done that. We see that in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. 
But the army of the Lord here is used in a way that implies that the armies commanded are the angelic armies. Remember, <laughs> Lord has legions of angels available to him to call down to fight. But this is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus himself revealing himself. Once again, remember Abraham, he understood who Jesus was under the oak of the, uh, at Mamre. Jacob at Peniel. Moses at the burning bush. The two disciples of Emmaus. He knew he was in the presence of God and that is why he dropped and worshipped. Total submission to Jesus Christ. How comforting that must have been for Joshua. God, what do we do next? God shows up and says, I am the commander and I'm leading. And here, I got my sword. Get your guys ready. Follow me. I am going to do this work. And yes, you're going to participate in what I'm about to do. Did God need to use Joshua and any of those guys? No. But that's how he builds faith. That's how he strengthens us to do hard things for God. Is he allows us to participate in the work that he is leading us to do. But why did, he, did Jesus come to Israel at this strategic time? At this specific time and place? Because he had to instruct Joshua in the plan to capture Jericho. And Joshua will carry out the plan to the T. And again, it will take faith because it will be so abnormal to what your logic would think you would do to take over a city like Jericho. But he had to come. Jesus had to come because he had to come to conquer Israel before Israel could conquer anything else in the promised land. They had to be conquered by God. Joshua had to be in total submission. And see, many times this is the missing element in the life of victory for many Christians. They haven't been conquered. They're not continually being conquered by God, being submissive to God in all areas of their life. And how important it is of obedience how important it is as we see here what a comforting words it must have been to Joshua to hear take off your sandal from your feet this is holy ground Joshua has heard those words before he read those words before he knew that God was in control Father we thank you and praise you for your word this evening we thank you for this book that you've allowed to be written by your Holy Spirit, preserved for us to learn and to grow in our faith of obedience. May we also have a consecrated heart to you, completely surrendered heart to you, ready to, to meet with you and to do what you called us to do, to have victory over the giants, the enemies. But we thank you for your provision. We thank you for your grace and your mercy upon our lives. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.